This morning we'll be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that from time past, the Lord Jesus has been given to us in all of the scriptures that we might listen to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Last time we examined the Old Testament witness concerning Christ, the long-promised priest. And I said at the beginning of that message that the most compelling Old Testament pointer to the coming of of the perfect priest was the imperfection of the Old Testament priesthood. The failure of the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices to, pro- to actually provide a way of access for sinful people into the very presence of God. Instead of a way of, of ready access to God, it was much more an obstacle course. Uh, the, the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrifices were were replete with barriers between men and God. And so there was inherent in that system the hope of something far better. And that's what the writer of Hebrews, that's where he goes in explaining how Christ perfectly fulfills all that that Old Testament system set before the people of Israel. In a similar way, we'll see a pattern sort of like that this morning as we talk about how God used the Old Testament prophets, to point to Christ, the perfect promised prophet. Christ is the only prophet who, in fact, fulfills the prophetic assignment uh, in in perfection. There were many faithful prophets in the Old Testament. There were many false prophets. But they were all sinners. And we will see see that the, the actual assignment that God set before the prophets, is fulfilled only perfectly in Christ. Now, um, there are two aspects to the assignment that God gave to his prophets. At At the most fundamental level, the prophets were simply to speak for God. They were to be his mouthpieces on earth. But there were, there were a couple of, of, uh, assignments in terms of objective, if you will, the goal of their, um, speaking on God's, speaking and writing on God's behalf. The first uh, is that his assignment for them was to point to Christ. Uh, and, and that's really the fundamental assignment is to point to Christ. And there's two pieces to that. First, by exposing men's need for Christ, hearts of stone don't heal themselves. And secondly, by heralding, and that means announcing in advance, God's one provision to meet that need. And his name is Christ. Now, this may not be exactly the, the way you would 
typically interpret or understand God's assignment for the priests. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to defend that if, any, if anybody's going to walk away buying it. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show from Scripture how, that, how I came up with that. Uh, first aspect of the prophetic assignment to point men to Christ is by exposing men's need for Christ. The prophetic word was a two-edged sword. Choose life or choose death. Those were the only two possibilities that God, God's prophets set before men. Choose life or choose death. I'm going to read six verses from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 to 20. And as I do so, uh, look at these from the perspective of, the, of what is the essence of the exhortation of the prophets to Israel and really to all the nations. Because I believe these verses distill that exhortation beautifully. God is speaking to Israel through his faithful prophet Moses. And he said, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. Now, a very direct translation of verse 15 is, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and bad. Good and bad. Verse 19 explains the good and the bad. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Blessing and curse. Good things from the hand of God or bad things from the hand of God. Those are the two options. Because it is God alone who controls all blessing and all curse. Everyone else and everything else is merely an instrument of, of His sovereignty. Moses told Israel that they would experience life and blessing by loving the Lord their God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. On the other hand, they would experience death and curse if they did not love God, did not obey His voice, and did not hold fast to Him, but instead turned and worshipped other gods. Those are the two paths that God's faithful prophets always set before God's people and before the nations. But there's an insurmountable problem with that proclamation. And that problem goes to the very heart of the prophetic assignment. And the problem is 
that we all start out on the wrong edge of that two-edged sword. And there's not anything that we can do about it. Until God gives us life, no matter how diligently we strive to choose life and to love God and to submit to God and to obey God, all of our striving ends up pointing out our inability. And that's by design, beloved. That's by design. Because God's intention was never, ever that men would move from death to life by resolving to choose life. Let me say that again. It was never, ever God's intention that men would move from death to life by resolving to choose life. In every age of mankind since Adam, God has had to transform the hearts of men by giving spiritual life where spiritual life did not exist. He has to take eyes that do not see Him and ears that do not hear Him and make them see and hear. He has to take hearts of stone that are hardened and rebellious against Him and He has to transform them into hearts that delight in Him. We can't do it for ourselves. And until He does so, even the most faithful proclamation of the truth by the most faithful prophet of God does not make men holy. Instead, it simply turns the brightest light of all onto their unholiness. The consistent witness of the prophets in the Old Testament is that we are not able to choose life. For generation after generation, God sent forth faithful men to proclaim the truth about God and about men, to prove through our failed response to that truth our desperate need for Jesus Christ. Now, I could spend the next dozen or so hours proving that critically important point from the Old Testament, but I'll spare you and I'll just give you a few snapshots from the Old Testament to establish the pattern. I'm going to start again with Moses. Before I put that up, in Deuteronomy 9, I want you to understand this scenario. In Deuteronomy 9, this is after God had delivered Israel out of 400 years of harsh, harsh bondage in Egypt through mighty miracles. He had brought them through the midst of a sea on dry ground and then drowned the army that was pursuing them in that same sea. He had fed them with bread from heaven and water from rocks for 40 years, while the shoes on their feet never wore out for 40 years. He had soundly defeated every enemy they had encountered on their long journey to the land that He had promised to them. Now, in Deuteronomy, they're at the threshold of that land. They are on the east side of the Jordan River looking across the river at the land of promise. And in that setting, God said this to them through His faithful prophet Moses. Do not say in your heart, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dis dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess their land. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. See, God repeats Himself, so I get to repeat myself too. In order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
<laughs> and then he says, in case they missed it, he says, No, then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess for you are a stubborn people. And how long have they been stubborn? A long time. He says, remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. It's quite an indictment. Years later, after Israel had conquered all of the fortified cities in the promised land by God's strong hand, and had taken possession of the land just as God had promised, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 24, exhorted Israel to put away all other gods, to fear only Yahweh and to serve Him in truth. The people answered that they would never forsake Yahweh. They would never forsake Yahweh to serve other gods because Yahweh was the one who had redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and He had, he had blessed them and He had defeated their enemies why would they ever have anything to do with any other God? That was the right answer. But Joshua told them it was not a true answer. Speaking on behalf of God as a faithful prophet, Joshua said to them that they would not be able to keep their resolution to serve only Yahweh. Joshua 24, verses 19 and 20, he said, You will not be able to serve the Lord. For He is a holy God. And see, that's the problem. He is a holy God. And we are not a holy people. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and do you harm and consume you after He has done good to you. And by the way, why did He do good to them? Was it because of their righteousness? He told them it wasn't. God had already told them through Moses they did not deserve the good things that God had done for them. Now Joshua told them they would continue in that undeserving condition. Because God is holy and men aren't. After Joshua, there's too much of this in the book of Judges to actually put it up on the slide, so I'll just give you the synopsis. Over and over you start in, in Judges chapter 2, or great passages, verse, chapter 2, verses 6 to 23, because it, it describes this, and then the rest of the book, it shows that cycle happening. Over and over, God graciously provided for and protected Israel by raising up leaders over them and granting them victory over their enemies, often miraculous victory. Really always miraculous victory. But over and over, even though God had given them every reason to fear Him, to love Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, Israel rebelled against Him. And when they did, God faithfully sent a chastising judgment to humble them, to bring them back. And then they expressed repentance and said, we will serve you, God. And that repentance in every case turned out to be very shallow and very short-lived. And then the cycle repeated. And there was a downward spiral from the beginning of Judges to the end of Judges because every man did what was right in his own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes. In Psalm 78, a couple of hundred years later, in the days of King David, 
a psalmist named Asaph wrote this psalm, and in, in it, which is one of the longest psalms, Asaph reviews the history of God's dealings with Israel from the time of, of the exodus from Egypt until the time of King David. And it's the same pattern that we saw in Judges. The same pattern. God graciously and miraculously provides for and protects Israel through many interventions. God gives them every, every reason to fear Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to obey Him. And Israel rebels against Him time after time. God sends a chastising judgment to humble them and to bring them back. And their response of repentance is so shallow that it's just like the blink of an eye. And they're right back to their rebellion against God. And the cycle repeats over and over. Jump forward about 300 years after Asaph's day to the days of Isaiah. And here's God's job description for Isaiah when he appointed him to serve as prophet of the living God. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now let me ask you, does that sound like it is by design that the people will reject the truth of God? I don't see any other way to interpret that. It was by design and so it happened. This was the experience of one faithful prophet of God after another, after another, over dozens of generations. At the national level, there were episodes of a form of repentance, turning to God in Israel. But again, they were always very short-lived because there was no actual transformation of the heart's of the people. Now I am certainly certainly not saying that nobody was truly saved and transformed in Old Testament times. I'm not saying that at all. There have been men and women in every age of mankind who were truly redeemed, made new by God. Israelites and non-Israelites. In every generation whose eyes and ears God graciously opened to receive His Word through the prophets. But it was always and only the grace of God that ever turned the heart of any man or woman or child. It was never the resolve of men. It was never the resolve of men. David cries out to, as, as one who is just, has, been, has been justified by faith in God, he cries out in Psalm 51 and he says, God, You create a new heart in me. In Psalm 139, he says, God, you search me and know my heart. You try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's always God. It's got to be God, not us, that causes the transformation. And so, throughout the prophetic books of the Old Testament, reminders of past judgment and prophecies of coming judgment, all fully deserved, are mixed with prophecies of a coming Redeemer who would indeed turn the hearts of men to God by giving life where life did not exist. And that brings us to the second facet of the prophetic assignment to point to Christ. 
The first part of the assignment was to point to Christ by exposing man's need for Christ. Hearts of stone don't heal themselves. The second facet of that assignment to point to Christ was to to herald God's one provision to meet that need. Herald, again, means to, to announce in advance. To herald God's one provision to meet that need for Christ, and that need, who meets it is Christ. Now, that, of course, is really the theme of this entire series. Uh, everything that the Old Testament prophets proclaimed and wrote was breathed out by God himself to bear witness to God the Son. So Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. It is these that testify of me. The Old Testament prophets announced the coming of Christ for dozens of generations until he came. They announced, according to Paul, that Christ had to die in our place to bear the penalty for our sins, and he had to be raised from the dead, and that all of that was known before he ever came. And we've seen that. We've, I believe we've established that in previous messages in this series from the Old Testament. But there are a couple of foundational passages regarding how men's hearts actually do turn to God that I want to make sure we have in mind at this point. In Jeremiah chapter 30, God told told Israel and Judah through the prophet Jeremiah that the wound that his judgments had inflicted upon them was incurable because their sins were so great and so numerous. And then he declared that he would cure their wound, their incurable wound. And in the very next chapter, chapter 31, he explained how he would change them to accomplish that cure. This is a familiar passage to many. This is the new covenant in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, verse 8, just before this, a little before this, same, same chapter, Ephraim, the tribe that had come to represent all of the ten northern tribes of Israel, cries out to God and he says to God, Turn me that I may be turned. Turn me that I may be turned. Now, in verses 31 and following, God declares that that has been His intention all along. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. And they will not teach each other again, each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God is declaring that He will transform the hearts of His sinful people. In Ezekiel 36, God indicts Israel and Judah 
for profaning his name in the nations to which he had sent them in exile. And then he says, I'll vindicate my name. You profaned it, I'll vindicate it, so that the nations will know that I am Yahweh. And I've said this before, but if you're an Israelite at that point, what are you thinking? When God says, you profane my name in those nations, I'm going to vindicate my name. What are you thinking he's going to do to you? Yeah, not good. Here's how God vindicates his name. Here's how he declares that he will vindicate his name. And this, too, is the new covenant in the Old Testament. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when I Prove myself holy among you in their sight. Here's how I'm going to do it. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes. And you will be careful to observe My ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be My people, and I will be your God. Beloved, those promises from the faithful prophets of God in the Old Testament set the stage for the long-promised prophet who would perfectly fulfill those promises. And would perfectly fulfill the assignment that God gave to all the prophets. Through the Old Testament prophets, God proclaimed over and over the spiritual deadness of the hearts of His own covenant people and of the people of all the other nations. He proclaimed and executed judgment after judgment against Israel and against the nations because of their unrepentant sin. He told them before, during, and after those judgments that they would persist in their sin while He demanded of them His holiness. He told them over and over that they would persist in their sin while He demanded of them His own holiness. It's a bit of a problem. He sent prophet after prophet to announce to them His intention to turn their unworthy and unturnable hearts to Himself. And then came Jesus. Christ is the promised perfect prophet. He fulfilled what Moses foretold. He was a prophet like Moses in every good attribute, but in perfection. Moses met with God face to face. Jesus is God. Jesus, His connection with His Father is unhindered. It's perfect. Jesus not only gets to step into the Holy of holies, and behold the glory of God. Jesus bears the glory of God because it's intrinsic to who He is. Deuteronomy 18 said it would be, this promised prophet would be a a prophet from among His own brethren. And Christ, according to the flesh, was an Israelite. Like Moses, Christ acts not only in the role of prophet, but in the role of mediator between God and His people. God declared in Deuteronomy 8 of this prophet to come that God would say, listen to Him, 
And if you don't listen to him, I myself will, will require it of you. And by the way, every time in the Old Testament when God says, I myself will require it of you, that means he doesn't delegate that task to anybody. It means that when you don't do what God is requiring in that case, God will deal with you personally. Jesus was recognized by many Jews in Jesus' own time as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, after Jesus fed nearly 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish and taught that multitude with divine authority, some of the people who witnessed that event said, this is of a truth the prophet who has come into the world. And they were talking about the prophet that was promised through Moses. Soon after that event, Jesus was teaching in the temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. And the multitudes were talking about all the miracles that he had been doing. And in John 7, verse 31, it says, Many of the multitude believed in him, and they, they were saying, When the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? That's a very Jewish way of saying I think this is the Christ. Jesus then spoke to the crowd about the coming of the Holy Spirit upon all who believe in him. He said, Now on the last day, the great day, it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And it says that he was talking about the Holy Spirit and then. Some of the multitude, when they heard those words, said, this is certainly the prophet. In Acts 3, when the Jews became agitated about the miraculous healing of a man who had been lame from birth, Peter came right out and told the Jews in that crowd that Jesus is the long-promised prophet of whom Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18. But beloved, the most compelling proof that Jesus was the preeminent prophet were told in the Old Testament was how perfectly Jesus fulfilled the prophetic assignment. There's no more compelling proof of your need for a Savior than having the one and only sinless man who ever walked this earth point out the real measure of his holiness and of your unholiness. Jesus' life and words removed all doubt regarding man's inability to choose life. Man's inability to turn his own heart to God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul declared that the law of Moses was given that every mouth may be closed and every man accountable to God. In other words, that men would have nothing to offer up to God. They would just be, their mouths would be closed. That being the case, Jesus perfected the purpose of the law. The law was the tutor to bring us to Christ by showing us the hopelessness and helplessness of our own slavery to sin. Jesus took the Jewish understanding of what God's law requires of men <laughs> and He blew a God-sized hole in that understanding. Christ's words and His life revealed without a doubt, beloved, that the holiness that God requires of men is His own holiness. It is not the ever-compromised 
pretense of holiness that men are able to muster up by the strength of their own will. It is not even the kind of holiness that everyone presumed had brought riches to the religious leaders in Jesus' day, men like the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. The true standard of the law, God's true requirement of every man, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one prophet, the one messenger of God who both declared and showed men what that true standard is more clearly, more perfectly than any sinful prophet ever could. Matthew chapter 5 drives this truth home like no other passage. In that passage, the righteousness that Jesus set before us in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness without which no man will ever see the kingdom of God, is Christ's own righteousness. The Beatitudes are about Jesus. They describe Jesus. They are required of us, but they describe Jesus. That whole chapter, beloved, starts... That that whole chapter after the Beatitudes, the, the essence of it starts with a standard that Jesus describes in chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And he he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And so the question then that's out on the table is by how much? By how much does your righteousness have to surpass that of of the religious leaders of the day? And the rest of the chapter is Christ giving the answer to that question, by how much? And the answer is, by as much as God's righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The one in that chapter who is condemned because he calls a brother, his brother a fool is us, you and me, you and I. And Jesus says the one who does that is guilty enough to go into the hell of fire. The one who won't pluck out his own eye to avoid lusting after woman is us, you and me. The one who won't cut off his own hand to avoid sinning, that's us. The one who takes his brother to court to get what's owed to him is us. The one who swears by heaven because his word is not worth believing is us. The one who slaps back when he's slapped instead of offering up his other cheek to the offense, that's us. The man who hates his enemy and despises those who persecute him, that's us. But the one who resisted temptation to the point of shedding his own blood is Jesus. The one who, while suffering, uttered no threats, while being reviled, did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly, is Jesus. The one who willingly allowed himself to be persecuted, mocked, spat upon, slapped, scourged, and crucified without one single protest or curse, is Jesus. The one who loved us when we were sinners and rebels and militant enemies of God, persecutors of the very Son of God, is Jesus. The one and only man who ever met the requirement of God that Jesus sets before us is Jesus. Because the standard of righteousness that God requires of men has always been the righteousness of Christ. In the Old Testament, God put it this way. Leviticus 19.2, He said, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Here's how Jesus put that exact same requirement 
in the punchline of Matthew chapter 5. And when I say punchline, I'm not talking about a joke. I'm talking about the line that delivers the punch. Matthew 5.48 The conclusion to a chapter that is entirely about the righteousness that God requires of all who will dwell with Him in His kingdom. Here's the punchline. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I've heard so many sermons and read so many articles that that mess with that and water that down and make it something less than it is, that make it some sort of relative standard of righteousness when it is the exact same standard of righteousness that pervades the entire Old Testament and that is the righteousness of God. It's the only righteousness that will ever pass muster with God. It is the only righteousness that will ever allow anyone in His creation to stand in His presence. It's not a compromised standard, guys. God does not grade on the curve. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is what God requires of the pinnacle of His creation. Man. His agents. His agents. His image bearers. That's what God requires of all who will dwell in His holy presence in the kingdom of righteousness forever and ever. There are not two standards One theoretical and one practical. There are not two standards. One impossible and one possible and achievable. There is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's Christ's righteousness or eternal separation from God. That was always the prophetic assignment, beloved. To set before lost men that which the perfect holiness of God requires of them. And that's perfect holiness. Jesus was and is the perfect prophet because He didn't merely proclaim to men what God required. He did what God required without exception. And then He did what was required for His righteousness to become our righteousness. There's another critically important punchline a little later in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew 19, at the very end of what what we know as the rich young ruler passage, after this wealthy, very religious Jew walks off hanging his head in despair, having just had the wretchedness of his own heart laid bare by Jesus, the disciples of Christ ask their Master a question for the ages. They say, in effect, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? That guy spent his whole life studying the Old Testament, he's a leader. In the temple, he tells people what God requires. Everybody looks up to him. He's the guy, all this wealth that he has, didn't that come from God because of his righteousness? If he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus' answer says it all, beloved. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. That's the perfect prophet perfectly fulfilling God's assignment for the prophets to proclaim our inability to choose life so that we will fall upon our knees before the only one who can give it to us. And we'll trust in Him alone. Because, beloved, if there's anyone here who thinks that that eternal life and righteousness in the eyes of God, can ever be anything 
other than a gift, then God is declaring to you from cover to cover in His Word that that's the only way you will ever stand in His kingdom. The only way you will ever be able to dwell with Him in His holy presence is if you receive a gift, the the most costly, most precious gift that has ever been given. The gift of eternal life, forgiveness from sins in Jesus Christ and in Him alone because He is the only One righteous. If you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will never stand before God. And when you are, simply by putting your faith in the One who is righteous and trusting in Him alone, in His perfect payment for your sin, in His resurrection that, that proved that God is satisfied with that payment, in His character, in the perfection of His holiness, if, if, it, is not, if it is His holiness, beloved, that you are trusting in, then, then you are the beloved. You are the beloved of God. You are signed, sealed, and soon to be delivered into the kingdom of God. And nobody and nothing can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nobody and nothing can ever separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When He gives that gift... He puts His Holy Spirit in you and He marks you as His and nobody can change that. What is impossible with men is possible with God and Jesus is the one who did it all. He did it all. I pray that this, that this registers. And I pray, beloved, that this will be what we proclaim. I, I won't take but another minute on this. There is far too much compromising of the message of sin and righteousness, and judgment, and redemption. There is no gospel if we are not telling people that we are all sinners unable to make ourselves acceptable to a holy God. There is no gospel if we're leaving that out. And there is, of course, no gospel if we're not telling them about the one and only one who paid what we owed to God so that that we could be righteous in His eyes forever. Loving Father, I thank You for these dear brothers and sisters. I thank You for anyone here this morning who who came depending on himself or herself in any way to be acceptable to You. Father, I pray that we would all be crystal clear that the testimony of Your Word from cover to cover tells us that we cannot choose You. You have to save us. You You have to reach into the darkness and pluck us out of it. You have to make us like that, like Joshua and Zechariah 3, a brand plucked from the fire. And so we just look to You. We trust You. We thank You. We who, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we thank You, Lord, that, that our destiny is settled and it had nothing to do with what we did. It has everything to do with the merits of Christ and Him alone. We pray these things in His precious name. Amen.